Hi, this is Leland Sklar, and I just want to say what a joy it is to be here on the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Check it out. This is really great. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Denny Tedesco, the director of Immediate Family, a wonderful new documentary about the four extraordinary musicians who played on and defined the singer-songwriter era of the 1970s. The stars of this movie are drummer Russ Kunkel, bassist Leland Sklar, who was previously on this podcast, and guitarist Danny Korchmar and Wadi Wachtel. They performed on records behind artists like Carole King, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, and so many others. This is the second time I've had Denny on the show. The first time we discussed his documentary called The Wrecking Crew, about the prior generation of studio musicians who performed on a zillion hit records in the 60s and beyond. And that included Denny's dad, Tommy Tedesco, one of the great guitarists of that era. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make it relevant somehow. And in this instance, my featured song is It Is a Miracle to Me from the album East Side Sessions by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, it's a joyous song about the magic in the air, the same magic that was infused in the singer-songwriter era that was captured so brilliantly by Denny in Immediate Family. So I thought it worked. So Denny Tedesco, welcome again to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. It's good to be back. Hey, listen, I got a chance to watch the movie. It's a terrific movie. I'm not just saying that because you're on the show. You know, this is the era that I came of age as a musician. So I knew all these guys. I knew all the albums that they were playing behind. It was a wonderful era. And, you know, as I was watching the movie, I scribbled down three words that I thought captured my view of this documentary. And they are intimate, personal, and in-depth. What do you think of that? Oh, that's, very, that's really cool. Can I steal that? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'll license them to you. How's that? That's an excellent review, actually. Do you know what I mean? That's a great it's such a great word. So there's three great words. And I believe that. I mean, those guys are exactly that. You know, they're very uh, intimate with, you know, they were very giving, you know, when we did this project. And that's the thing I like about these projects is being able to get to know them and let them trust you and try, you know, and we can banter and talk and hang. Did you know them before? Or how did this come about? I mean, Leland, I knew. Leland was a trip because when the Wrecking Crew was coming out, 
Leland was always there at all these these events. He was there to support the film, which was a trip because, you know, he loved those guys, the Wrecking Crew guys. And he he was the only one that ever worked with my dad. So the other guys, you know, Cooch and Wadi and Russ, I just, I mean, they were all, again, legends to me because there's all those names, you know. And so my producers, Greg Richling and Jonathan Sheldon and Jack Pye came to me and said, what do you think about this idea? And I said, I love that idea, you know, and I, I grasped that really quickly because I understood it very quickly. A lot of times people give you ideas and they're great ideas, but I didn't have a, I can't find a hook. You know, you could come to me with, a, you know, a bunch of bands or a bunch of people, you know, ideas, but I kind of always, it's like a song, I guess. You got to find a hook. And so my hook to this was, the wrecking crew ends and Lou Adler said in the movie, he said, Hey, I, I asked him, I said, why did you change your sound in tapestry? He goes, no, he goes, it wasn't a conscious decision. He says, it was just, uh, Carol King, Carol King brought her friends in. She brought in Cooch and brought in James Taylor as her band. So that wasn't like a conscious decision to stop using wrecking crew guys. So when he said that, it made sense. This is the perfect jumping off point. And then the other thing, they had a band called Immediate Family, which is their own little band uh, that they're just hanging, you know, they're, they're brothers and they're friends. And they, you know, when they're not doing their own, uh, the stuff for money, they, you know, get together and, and play. And they put together a couple albums and that's what they did. Well, to me, this made so much sense because it was like the sequel to the Wrecking Crew, okay? The Wrecking Crew basically was the 60s. I know they went further, but they captured the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And this band, this group, captured the, the 70s. And what I liked about your documentary, both of the documentaries, you were able to really capture that moment in time. That's hard to do. So kudos to you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just thrilled to have that opportunity. You know, seriously, um, I know a lot of people don't have that chance, and and I've been given that chance now. Well, you told me the last time that one of the things that spurred you on with the Wrecking Crew was that some of those guys were starting to fade or to pass on, and you needed yeah. to capture them when they were still around. And of course, all the people that you've got in the new documentary, they're still around. At least I think almost they're all still around. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Other than David. Now, that's right. David Crosby is not. But there would come a time, probably not too distant future, where you'd start losing them as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because there is also that exactly. I mean, I was lucky when I started with my dad that it was obviously urgent uh, time period because when I started wrecking with my father, Tommy, was passing away. You know, he literally had a death sentence. They said, oh, he's going to last maybe a year. So that really propelled me into getting him in the, you know, filmed and all that. And then the rest of them. And he was 67 at that time. The difference between these guys, it's interesting because it took 19 years to make that other film, you know, from beginning to getting it out. So I was thrilled that I didn't have to take that long for this. You know, I had support and um, for all these guys to see that happen, you know, Listen, 20 years from now, no one, we're not, <laughs> I can guarantee most of us won't be here. 
but you know, I was happy to do. You know, the other difference between these guys and the Wrecking Crew, Wrecking Crew guys, once the era of the studios ended, you know, everybody went different ways. You know, Dad went into film and TV in the seventies and eighties. You know, other guys, some guys went on the road. You know, um, Hal went on the road with John Denver. You know, Larry Nectar went out, and Don Randy had his club, his jazz club, and continued to stay in the studios, but. These guys never stopped playing. That's the wild thing is Leland and Russ just got off the road a, a month ago or two months ago with uh, Lyle Lovett. They did three and a half months straight every night on a bus. Uh, Wadi Wachtel is the musical director for Stevie Nicks. They're still doing it. And there's 76, you know, and that's killer. What you're describing is it's so interesting to me because there was a pivotal moment and Lee Sklar spoke about it in the documentary. He said he went from zero to a hundred, yeah. you know, right after this thing started. And I think the reason was because all of a sudden people like Peter Asher and Lou Adler indicated on the record albums who was playing behind the major artists, whereas the wrecking crew was always anonymous. And that was the difference, I thought, between those two eras. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's just interesting because when my father breaks into the studios, let's say 58, he comes here in 53, he started to get some work in 58. It's a slow, 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 you know, build. You know, so he has, by the time, you know, the heyday of 66, 67 in L.A. in the studios where he's going three, four sessions a day, you know, it's a 10 year run to be, you know, where Leland and these guys very quickly, like you said, and I think it had to do with the credits, you know, and the business was totally different too. You know, Leland, the guys that uh, we're talking about meaning family, they had more time to spend on an album. They would do two, three, maybe a month on an album. And then they take them on the road to support the album. Right now. And that was totally different. Now, here's a, there is a difference, though, at the time when Leland is doing Sweet Baby James, the tour, he doesn't do the album. He's brought out of uh, CSUN, the, you know, college. You know, James ran across him in a rehearsal band. They were a band that was rehearsing. And he said, oh, my God, this guy's the greatest bass player. And so Leland leaves college for a month. He never went back. You know, that was 50 something years ago. He never went back to college. He still needs his diploma. So, <laughs> listen, you're absolutely right that in the Wrecking Crew era, they went from session to session to session. That's what they did. They didn't go out on the road with these artists. And they, they had such a plethora of artists from Frank Sinatra to the Beach Boys to Cher. I mean, it was just a gigantic range. The guys in immediate family, they, they also mentioned in the movie, that they got hired not to sound like anybody else, but to be themselves. So yeah. there was a certain sound that got started in that singer-songwriter era. And I know that every artist was a little different, but there was a continuation, if you will, of the sound. And then, as you said, they went out on the road as well. So it was very different in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think uh, it was just different time period you know wrecking crew were there because they had to be there the musicianship wasn't great in the early days of rock and roll in terms of the road bands 
you know, they only had one or two tracks. So the labels made sure that they cover their asses with these guys, you know, the Wrecking Crew guys who could come in and get out a full band without ever stopping. Three hours, three hours, three hours. Now, I think Danny and Leland and Russ and Wadi and all these guys at the time, they get to take their time and develop it and have a big part of that that song they be you know they you know they get to have that chance to really i think well wadi and you know and danny are writers so they get to write songs as well but they really i think put more of themselves into it or had the chance to put more of themselves into it with time right okay i gotta ask you this because when we spoke about the wrecking crew you told me again what a long strange trip it was yeah for you to get that documentary made you ran up all kinds of debts on your credit cards i think you said your wife refused to let you do another movie i mean and then you burst through at the end so i'm curious how'd you convince your wife to let you do the next one she didn't have to do anything she didn't we had people <laughs> investing oh no it was that was like i'm not putting it we're not putting money into it and i totally agreed i mean i you know i went bankrupt the first film you know, there's things that you do. Um, I was a gambler. I gambled the first one. You know, you gamble, 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 hoping that you're going to come through on the other end. I did, but I still lost in some ways. But I won on the other, on the other side. Well, you broke through. That's what counts. Yeah. And, you know, and it's and I don't discourage the taking chances. You know, you got to take chances. You know, it's funny because I learned that in a sense, not only in a negative way, but with my father. If my father didn't take chances in his work, he would never become who he became. If he didn't take a chance on leaving a little Niagara Falls, New York, go on a road trip that, that after a dance, you know, audition, he would never have come to LA, you know? And it, everything is always meant to, if he doesn't take a chance on making a, a you know, playing a chord a different way because he needs to show, you know, the guy a different sound. You know what I mean? You always say, you gamble. This is what life is all about. It's sometimes stepping out of your comfort zone, but you got to take chances. I totally agree with you. All right. So tell me a little bit about not just the production of this film, but how you market it. Is this going to be on all the streaming services? Is it going to be in the theaters? What are you going to do with this? Here's what happens. All right, so we just did the festivals. It's funny. if I tell people, if it wasn't for the festivals, none of these films would ever get made because we have nowhere to show these films. You know, you have to get in the festivals. And we've done, I think, 28 festivals around the country. And uh, You have to apply for these festivals? How does this work? Well, yeah, yeah. You, you have to basically uh, send in, you know, the film and they, you get judged. You know, there were festivals we didn't get in. You know, and um, that's okay. You know, they'll know later. That's my bitter Italian in me. Uh -huh. Really, what I really say is I can't say it on uh, on uh, <laughs> No, I mean, there's, listen, some festivals we're not right for, or, you know, or the programmer doesn't feel it's going to work. But we did have 28 festivals, and we ended up walking away with 16 awards. Well, tell me how this works. You're in 28 festivals. Do they show the film to a big audience? Oh, Is yeah, it yeah. just the judges that see the film? How does it work? You no, know, to get in, 
they have people watching films like they'll have a, a group of judges whatever just to watch to see which ones they want to you know program then basically some of the festivals are three days sometimes they're a week or two weeks and they play it once or a couple times to you know real audiences so i'm going from middlebury vermont to nashville to woodstock to uh newport beach to san diego all over the country and the great thing is what i love about these festivals they're real people do you know I mean they're not like industry people they're not like la do you know I mean they're not new york i mean we played in la and new york but you know what i mean but it's it's middle america right and the great thing about these films is music brings both every you know red and blue together all types come to these films you know and that's what i really love about the festivals and like i said if we didn't have a place to show these films no one would ever see us because what it does is it gives us the opportunity now which it did i'm we make a lot of noise we get awards let's say and now people start looking and listening so magnolia films ended up picking us up you know but you have to prove yourself out there you got to keep going hey check this out we just got another award hey check this review out and what i tell other film young filmmakers you go there you make noise you make sure people are going to follow you every which way you know on your facebook page on instagram whatever it is the old days i used to collect emails I used to have you give out raffles. Hey, sign this and we'll pull out a name and give you a hat, you know? And what that did is allowed me at the end when I had to get wrecking crew out, I had 40,000 people on a mailing list. So here you're building up by scratch, just like a band. Right. And so it worked. I mean, my feeling is there's 200 people in the audience. Those 200 people tell five people, we got a thousand people hearing about us. Yep. It's all the dirty word that we love to use now is influencers. Well, we're, <laughs> you know, and the funny thing is, my God, we, we're all influencers. Did you get Kardashian or Taylor Swift? That's what oh I want. Oh, my God, please don't. I mean, that I would seriously would love that. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> Taylor or one of them? Just, I mean, hey, listen, get Travis Kelsey. Then you're right next to Taylor, okay? I'll take any one of those. Hey, if there's anybody out there, influencers, or anybody, please call me. Yeah, I'm in the same position. I'd love to get some influences. Why not? But but the thing is, it allow you allow me to tell the story, and we hit all these people. It's no different. It's nothing's changed. The only difference is, like I said, if it wasn't for festivals, I'm so grateful for. That's the only you know. And you guys, there's so many great films out there in festivals. I can imagine. So tell me this: Magnolia picks it up. What are they going to do with it? Now that we open on December 12th across North America. And December 12th is a screenings of like, we got about 80 theaters now. And it'll play that night. Some will play just one night. Some will play it for a week. Some will play it for a few days. On the 15th, it goes to video on demand. So it'll go to Apple, Amazon Prime, uh, places where you can rent it or buy it. Uh -huh. And then a few months later, the hope is it will go to Hulu. So I'm just curious, when it goes to something like Amazon On Demand or uh, Amazon Prime, excuse me, do you guys set what the rental rate is or does or do they set what the rental rate is? 
I don't know who does that. I don't know if I don't know if that's a Magnolia thing or I don't know if that's uh, Amazon. I'll tell you. Recently, for my grandkids, they wanted to see. Guess what? Barbie. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Rented on Amazon Prime. It cost twenty seven dollars. Okay, which was crazy to buy it with twenty nine dollars. That's what they were trying to make you do. Well, here's the interesting thing. I mean, God, what's interesting is, yeah, that's really crazy. But you could have ten people in that room for for uh, three dollars a pop. But that, yeah, that's very funny. I didn't realize they did that. Yeah. Well, my grandkids have all watched it about ten times each, so I did advertise it a little bit. I hope your grandkids like immediate family that much too. I'm going to ask them to watch it. You know, I asked my my two daughters as they were growing up. I said, "There's one movie in particular that I want you to watch," and it was a Hard Day's Night. Yeah. Beatles movie. Why? Because I said, you're never going to really understand what the 60s was about. You'll never understand what Beatlemania was about unless you see that movie. Because that movie captured that moment, just like your movies capture the moment that you're trying to get. Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. Well, I mean, it's it, we're lucky, you know, it's, that we're able to, you know, we're lucky to have people that were there and remember it. And that's what it helped. You know, obviously that's what makes it work. Yeah. The remembering it part is the, is the tough well, one. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing is, no, it's true. And you know, that was part of the problem. If I had to do, it's weird because if I had to do the wrecking crew, well, it's not that big of a difference, but if I did the wrecking crew when I did it and then did it 20 years later, it would never work. Even if the guys were alive because our memories are shot. My memory shot, and I'm 62. And we start believing some other BS stories that are not true, you know, that they've read or or they've discounted. And um, these guys, but immediate family, they're still, I mean, they're not that. They're still sharp. No, they're out there. But I, I want to ask also, you've got so many other celebrities to partake in this movie. I'm talking about James Taylor. Uh, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, Peter Asher, Lou Adler. Was it difficult for you to get these folks? Did you do it? Did your producers help? How did that work out? All right, so we go for this meeting with uh, the producers, and I go pitch the idea to the to the band, and the band, yeah, they jump on it. So that, yeah, so the next day they say yes, and they said Carol King said yes, and she could be interviewed in three weeks. And I was like, whoa, I was not ready for that. You know, I tell people, I said, it took 19 years for the first film. I thought I at least had a couple more weeks. And I quickly started doing my research. You know, I'm, you know, you go into these meetings and you're giving them broad strokes. You think, you know, you don't know the story until you start shooting it sometimes. And so all of a sudden I'm dealing with Carol King in three weeks within, what was it, uh, two months and this says everything because the hardest part is getting past the gatekeeper. There were no gatekeepers because the guys in the band and their management know all these people and they're friends with all these people. So within two months, I had, like you said, Carol King, Jackson Brown, James Taylor, Linda Ronstead, Lou Adler, Phil Collins, uh, Lyle Lovett. I mean, I kept going. I mean, in the end, I have David Crosby, Keith Richards. Don Henley, and that all came after COVID hit. But there are no gatekeepers. 
And the love that they had for these guys is obvious. They jumped on it. And that's the other difference, again, back to my father. My dad wasn't hanging out with the artists. You know what I mean? He wasn't going out hanging with Frank, you know, or Jan and Dean or the guys. Right. You know, he's going to the next session in three hours or he's yep. and not going on the road. So the relationship between Linda and the guys or Carol and James and the guys is much stronger because on the road together. You know, they've just done an album, took a month. Now they're on the road for two, three, four months, sometimes longer. As Linda said, it was it used to be uh, album tour. Then it was album tour, 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 tour. You know, and they just kept going. And, you know, you don't turn down work. It is interesting that these guys still enjoy being out on the road for extended periods of time. You know, yeah. one of the great advantages I have of this podcast is that when I release my new music, I can do it through the podcast. I have this platform that sends it all around the world. And I revel in the fact that I don't have to schlep around the world to do this. But those guys, they've been doing it for so long. This is part of their DNA. Yeah, it was really in, in COVID was, did you, well, you talked to Liam, but he told you, I mean, when COVID hit that year, his whole book was, you know, he was booked solid and then everything was empty. And he goes, you know, it was the first year he never went on the road or worked. Yeah. What do I do now? And yeah. And he just yearned for, you know, getting back to normal. And those guys, that's what they do. They're road dogs. They play, record, and they get on the road and play it live. And they love it. Yep. Well, listen, again, it's a wonderful documentary that you've come up with. We're talking here with Denny Tedesco, the director of Immediate Family, on the heels of The Wrecking Crew, which was another wonderful documentary. And really and truly, I want to express my appreciation and kudos to you for, again, capturing not just these guys, but capturing the era, because it means so much. It's almost like, you know, having a, a time capsule that for the rest of time, people are going to be able to look at this and say, OK, now I get it. I know who these people are. I know where this music came from. And uh, good for you for doing all of this. Thank you. You know. Again, I thank everybody that was involved, my producers and the and the guys and the artists. You know, just spreading the word is all I can do now. And seeing the outtakes, by the way, I don't know if you got to see some of the outtakes on the website, but those are getting to be really fun. You know, things I forgot about that I just couldn't put in. Wow. Yeah, there's always the blooper reel, right? Yeah. Just, I mean, Wadi cracks me up. I mean, Waddy's my, my, uh, the funny, he's so funny. He seems like a fun guy. All right. Again, we've been speaking here with Denny Tedesco, the director of Immediate Family. I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast again, Denny. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. All right. We're going to listen now to that song that started off the podcast episode. It's my song called It Is a Miracle to Me from the album East Side Sessions. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. It dances with me when I jump around. It is a miracle to me. The
Can be. 